What a joy it is to share God's word with you this morning. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 13. This is the last in our series on proclaiming the invincible world in a cancel culture. And I think sometimes we uh, the words cancel culture are, are quite new, but the concept is as old as the fall. And the Jer- uh, Jeremiah and the other prophets certainly, uh, many folks attempted to cancel them as they proclaimed God's invincible world, uh, uh, invincible word. Uh, the last two messages, Dr. Han's proclamation that flows from loyalty to God and uh, Ben Federhoff's proclamation amid persecution reinforce the necessity of God's proclaimers remaining faithful under pressure and under persecution. And they're just incredibly valuable lessons for us. And and so I would ask you this morning, and I want to make a lot of application to our personal lives this morning, how how are we doing with the pressures we're facing right now? I mean, the pressures of our studies, the pressures of finances, the pressures of mistreatment and misunderstanding, the, the pressures of loneliness, whatever those pressures are. Whatever pressures God is allowing in our lives today are simply the fitness stations to build strength for tomorrow's challenges. And we must be faithful today under the pressures that God has placed us under. And and, uh, Jeremiah certainly, uh, uh, we'll get to a portion in just a moment as we recapture something from chapter 12. But uh, God told Jeremiah, look, you can't faint now. (laughs) You have no idea what's coming. And you and I must learn how God tells his people to handle pressure because there is more coming. And this book is full of dialogues, the dialogue between Jeremiah and, um, uh, and God are sometimes very emotional and always instructional for us. Um. All of these dialogues are going to teach us something about the nature of God. They're going to teach us doctrine. As we listen to these dialogues, we're going to be reproved. As we listen to these dialogues, God is going to show how he wants his people to correct the way they're living and how they must remain faithful. And all of these dialogues are very, very instructive for us. And I just want to give a quick overview of the dialogues here in, in these four chapters, 12 to 15. But we'll, chat, we'll focus on chapter 13. But in, in chapter 12, there are many things going on. And this just it captures a little snapshot. Um, God is, uh, Jeremiah is saying, God, judge these leaders, but spare these people. And then that very familiar, if you're in Jeremiah 12, 13, just turn back to 12 for just a moment. Look at verse 5. And uh, God says, "If you well, in verse um, uh, 3, he says, But you, O Lord, know me. You've seen me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. He's, and he's talking about the leaders here, the perverse leaders. Lord, judge them. And uh, verse 5, God says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And he's saying, Jeremiah, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's right there in the Hebrew. That's what that means. Um, He said, you've not seen anything yet. Wait until all the people turn against you too, not just the leaders. Your family, your friends, the people. And if you're fainting now, what are you going to do when the real trouble comes? 
And as we walk, then, and, and he said, by the way, I'm judging all the people because all of them are evil. Not just the leaders, it's everybody. Um, and then in, um, uh, in chapter 13, he says, uh, Jeremiah, you need to see what I see in all of this. And we're going to look at that. In chapter 14, Jeremiah again says, please don't leave us, God. Spare us, please. And in chapter 15 that Dr. Hand uh, walked us through, he says, Jeremiah, get on my side of these issues and I will protect you. And men and women, when we are in a cancel culture and we feel even abandoned by God and other believers, we have to get on God's side of an issue. And we've got to stay on his side of the issues. So I want to go back to... uh, um, uh, some emphasis here from chapter 13. So when feeling abandoned, get God's perspective. And God is saying to Jeremiah, the evil is greater than you realize. And even today, men and women, we can look around us and we can watch what's going on in Washington and watch what's going on in other uh, parts of the world and governments and, and think, this is, this is just wrong. This is wicked. And God says, that's not the only wickedness I see. I see it in my people. I see it all around. All of us are meaning makers, aren't we? We're all trying to make sense out of what is happening to us. And so this is why Jeremiah and, and we ask sometimes, God, what, this doesn't make sense what you are doing. This doesn't seem to connect. You said this and this is happening. And that's where God says, you need to get on my side of this issue. You need to see this the way I see it. This is a really important thing in in, uh, Freedom at Last, our addiction recovery discipleship program on Friday nights when most of the groups are meeting and most of the the classes meeting with small groups. I meet with all the newcomers uh, who are there for the first time and I, I, I talk to them about the schedule and how we approach this matter of, of addiction and overcoming it. And, um, and then I, I give a gospel presentation, a, v- a very simple one. Um, but I began with Romans 3.23, that all of us are born sinners and, and uh, choose to sin. And that's serious because the penalty for our sin, according to Romans 6.23, is eternal death in hell. And sometimes somebody will say, but I don't think a good God would send anybody to hell. And I said, well, you need to get his perspective about this. I said, for example, seven, uh, dad uh, has two sons, seven-year-old Johnny, eight-year-old um, uh, Stevie, and uh, he builds him a sandbox in the backyard, fills it with sand, and he goes off to work, and as soon as the boys wake up and get outside, they take their buckets and their Tonka trucks, and they haul all that sand out into the woods and build mounds and mountains for their army men and um, dad comes home and there's no sand in the box. He realized I didn't tell him to keep it in the box. So he hauls it all back in and says, boys, you got to keep the sand in the box. So the next day, Johnny and uh, Stevie are out playing again. And Johnny fills his bucket with sand and he heads off to the woods. And Johnny says, uh, or Stevie says, Johnny, put that sand back. And Johnny says, you can't make me. Now, it depends on the size differential. Maybe he can and maybe he can't. But let's say dad comes out and says, Johnny, put that sand back. And Johnny says, you can't make me. Do we have a bigger problem? Yeah, we do. Dad might say, son, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Put the sand back. 
Um, but let's say now Johnny's 18 and he's standing before a judge and he's stolen a car. And uh, the judge says, your trial's coming up in two weeks. And uh, in the meantime, you may not leave Greenville County. And uh, Johnny says, you can't make me. Do we have a big problem now? And when I'm speaking to the men and women at Freedom at Last, many of them have spent time in jail and, and they go immediately, whoa. <laughs> yeah, you don't talk to a judge that way. And I said, what, what I'm illustrating is, is that you can, do the, you can say the same things and be defiant with the same words, but it's a whole lot more costly depending on who you say it to. The level of authority. And when you defy the eternal authority of God as your maker and your creator, the punishment is eternal capital punishment for that offense. We have to get God's perspective. And that's what God is going to do for Jeremiah here. He's going to broaden his outlook and say, there's something more you got to consider. You're looking at all the hardships that are coming on the people, and that's tragic. But you got to get my picture here of what is really going on. And you need to get on my side. I'm, I'm going to help you make sense out of this. And men and women, the Bible is the only thing that helps us make sense of this world. It's the only thing that helps us make sense about what is happening to us, about the pressures that are upon us and what God is intending to do. Only the Bible can give us the, uh, the, the meaning for what is happening in our lives. That doesn't mean we have the answer for everything. There are secret things that belong to God. But our interpretive lens, which and all of us are interpreters, we want to make meaning out of things. And our interpretive lens is foggy, however, when, number one, we listen to the perspective of our own flesh. And Dr. Hand laid that out from chapter 15, where Jeremiah got into a pity party. Not that any of us would ever do that. But, um, but you know, Jeremiah's in a pity party, and he's, he, you, you know, you can invite people to a pity party, and you can have balloons and cake. And, I mean, it's a wonderful party, getting everybody to feel bad about what is happening to you. And Jeremiah has a pity party, and God says, when you return, I'll protect you. Get on my side of this issue. When we listen to our flesh, and our flesh can say, this just is not fair, and it may not be. We can say, this is too much for me, and and that is not true. I'll never be able to handle this. God must not love me. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we, our flesh tries to speak into our lives and will always get messed up. It'll, it'll fog up our interpretive lens. And the other thing that in, in this passage, God is saying, you, you don't have, uh, you, you, to have a, an interpretive lens that's clear, you need to have the whole picture. And with that in mind, turn to chapter 13. And here I'm going to talk about lessons from a loincloth. And um, uh, that picture in front of you is a 17th century painting by Spinoza. Uh, It hangs in El Greco Museum in Toledo, not Ohio, but Spain. You say, where'd you get a picture like that? I have two daughters who are deeply embedded in the art world. And so I I just kind of think art along with them. uh, About this, but and this is actually is another biblical character, but it shows the loincloth and what Jeremiah was uh, being asked to do. So let's turn turn to uh, chapter 13 now and follow along as I read the first 11 verses. 
Thus says the Lord to me, go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it uh, there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. We're going to come back to that phrase quite a bit. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. The evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve and worship them shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and a glory, but they would not listen. And God is telling Jeremiah, you got to understand why I created these folks in the first place. And if you don't get that, and you don't understand how they are spoiling all of what I'm trying to do, you won't understand my judgment. You have to get my picture about what is going on. It was priestly. He said, I want you to go buy linen, probably a priestly linen, perhaps signifying the priestly role of God's people. And God spelled that out in Exodus 19.5. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And God says, wear it, don't wash it, and then stash it at Euphrates. There's some some, uh, debate about what Euphrates we're talking about here, whether this is Euphrates River, a 700-mile trip that he had to make twice, which is probably a little difficult uh, for this. Or is this a play on the name of a city about three, uh, three miles away that also had a spring? And regardless, um, when you put it in water and let it just sit there, it's going to rot. Uh, it's not doesn't have polyester going through it. And his, his conclusion is, like my people, this loincloth becomes good for nothing. And so God's statements here revolve around his purposes. He says again, For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. And that perhaps harkens back to Exodus 19, 5 to 6, where God told Moses, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And Peter picks up on that theme in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2, 9, where he says, But you are a chosen race. This, he's talking about you and me here, men and women. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that ye may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, here's what I, here's why I have saved you. Here's why I have redeemed you. I've called you out of darkness into light so that you would be the light in this world. That's my purpose for you being here. But Israel was evil. He says in verse 11, verse 10, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own hearts. Boy, we hear that today. Children's movies and everything. You know, just follow your heart. Man, you're in trouble if you do that. God says, he that, he that trusted in his own heart is a fool. He says, they follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them. They shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. And I want to make a parallel to the New Testament again for us. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Here's, here's our final um, judgment after, right after uh, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. For, this is not about our salvation. This is about how useful were we to him in this kingdom in light of everything he's done for us. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That word evil is faulos. It can be translated evil, bad. It can be translated worthless or good for nothing. You know what the judgment seat of Christ is about? Whether he, he paid for our lives, he bought our sin, he paid our sin debt, bought us out of slavery, put his own spirit in us, gave us this amazing word. And he expects a return out of that with our lives. And the judgment seat of Christ is what kind of return did we give him for that? Were the works that we spent, were they good or good for nothing? This is not a small matter. Are our works wood, hay, and stubble, or are they gold and silver, precious? Something, men and women, we've got to be asking ourselves, because we're, we're in the same position of, of Israel as a nation and as a church. And God says, I'm looking for people who have an impact for my kingdom. Not good for nothing. And the question is, you and I have to ask ourselves, am I usable for kingdom work right now? Am I doing kingdom work right now? Am I a testimony? By the way I handle pressure, I had a a new grad student ask me yesterday, he said, how do you have a discipling impact on the people around you? And I said, first of all, you've got to live in in such a way that people want what you have. People are not going to be coming to you if you're a complainer. If you sit in the dining common and gripe about the food, you are not, you're not even thinking about discipleship. You're thinking about yourself. You're griping about the food. You're griping about a chapel message. You're griping about an assignment. You're, you're grousing about mom and dad or something, or, or your phone went bad, or the computer went bad. you got that kind of complaining attitude. People are not going to be coming around and say, how do I get what you have? They already have that. You and I have to be lights in this world. And we're going to stand before God and give an account of how useful we were to him in light of everything he's done. And the thing is, he's going to honor us when we are. He's going to honor us with crowns. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to say, 
you did this. We're going to give it back. God only honors what he himself produces. And you and I need to be bearing fruit. We can't be useless people. So what made them useless? They refused to hear my words. And I would ask you, are there words from God that you're refusing to listen to right now? He's convicting you about that lust. He's convicting you about that habit. He's convicting you about those friends. He's convicting you about your attitude towards somebody, your unforgiveness, your bitterness. Are we doing something with his words? Are we refusing to hear his words? And they stubbornly follow their own heart. My wife and I have counseled many, many, many couples through the years. And my wife has had women tell her, I knew walking down the aisle that this was wrong to marry this guy. But they wanted to follow their heart. They wanted this guy. Another one said, my pastor told me not to do this. My friends told me not to do this. The elder in my church told me not to do this. But I wanted this guy. That's following your own heart. And it will always lead to your destruction. You can't trust your own heart. Lean not to your own understanding. And they went after other gods. They went after their, the things that they could see around them that would satisfy them in some way. And they became good for nothing. I, w- I want to make a parallel here with some applications from 2 Timothy 2.20 to 22. I, 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 don't, I don't think Paul is thinking about the ruined loincloth, but for us there certainly is a parallel here because God talks about being dishonorable vessels. And in verse 20, 2 Timothy 2, he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, men and women, that means all of us can walk with God. If any man cleanse himself from that which is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is what God wants for us. This is what he promises us. I can use you, but you're going to have to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There are certain things you and I must be intentionally actively, purposefully engaged in. We must be purposefully and intentionally fleeing youthful lusts. That's not just sexual lust, so that's part of it. Teens and all of us have been there once. We, you know, you want to be accepted, you want to be liked, um, you want to be somebody, you want to be respected. And Paul says, you can't base your life on that. You've got to flee youthful lusts. And, and I would ask us this. Do we run passages like Jeremiah 13, 1 to 22 that we looked at in 2 Timothy 2 through the change process of 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, which says all scripture, the, everything we've read is profitable for doctrine. It teaches us something about God and about us. And it's profitable to reprove us 
and it's profitable to correct us and get us back on the right course, and it's profitable to instruct us how to live consistently a righteous life. So I ask you, if we're going to let the word of God reprove us, what are your youthful lusts? What is it that you really, really want, that you really, really need to be fleeing from? Are you fleeing these youthful lusts? Are you dabbling in them or are you enslaved to them? And I just beg of you, whatever it is you're enslaved to, whatever it is you're struggling, get some help while you're here. You say, well, you know, I'll be embarrassed or whatever. Listen, that's a low price to pay. When you get out and that takes over and it costs you your marriage and your ministry, that's a high price to pay. Get the help when the price to pay is low. And that's right now. What does correction look like? What is, if, I'm, if I'm going to flee this youthful passion, I, I, I want to be liked, I'm, I'm lonely, I've got to have companionship or, or whatever. And some of these, I mean, I'm not saying they're necessarily sinful, but they're all out of proportion. What do we need to repent of? What do we need to remove from our lives that is influencing us that way? Youthful lust would include entertainment, and the amount of hours that even young adults and older adults are spending in entertainment is just horrible. There's kingdom work to be done. That doesn't mean you can't have a little bit of fun. But there is kingdom work to be done. And we have, we have passions to be distracted just like the world does. And what does instruction and righteousness, what steps do you need to make to take to flee them? Write out some action steps. I, I've taught the men and women at Freedom at Last. Um, the way to handle trouble is BTO, bow, trust, and obey. You bow in repentance or dependence or bow in submission, whatever it is you need to bow. The first thing you do under any trouble is get on your face before God. You bow, then you trust what he has said in his word, but you have to know what he has said in his word. And then you have to obey what he said in his word. And there's no better life to live. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So I ask, how how would you define and describe these qualities you must pursue? What is he talking about? Do you ever ask yourself when you're reading, he says, pursue righteousness. Have you ever asked yourself, what does that look like? What does he mean by pursue? What does he mean by righteousness? I'm already fully righteous in Christ. I am. But there is a right living that needs to come out of that, and I need to pursue that. So what is it that I should be doing that I'm neglecting? And that may start with just an enormously increased time in his word. Opening our Bible and saying, God, I don't care what you show me in this book with your help, I'll do it. Pursuing righteousness. And, 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 and Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will be filled. And if you and I have any hunger for righteousness, it's because God put it there. Our flesh didn't put it there. 
And God said, I make you thirsty and I'm going to quench it. But it's going to be right here. Pursue righteousness and faith. We're in, all of us are under pressure. Do, we, we need to exercise our faith. What is it there about God that we need to remind ourselves about? What is there about God that we need to trust? What is there about God that we need to surrender to? Exercising our faith. There are unseen things. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, Paul says. So in my pressures and in my troubles and when I feel abandoned, when I feel betrayed, when I feel rejected, are we raising our sights to see the invisible? Or are we just focused on the visible? What about love? Anybody here need more love? I I do. I, I, I run short of it sometimes. And yet the greatest commandments are loving God and my neighbor. And the more I see his love for me, the more I love him. Because he first loved us. How do you pursue love? More love in your own life? You see the love of God to you. And what about peace? Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall cause them to stumble. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Jesus said, I come to give you peace, but not the way the world gives you peace. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Our minds must be filled with the promises and the words of the living God to us when our souls are in turmoil. And I say to the people I minister to constantly, the only scripture that is going to help you fall asleep under all of the pressures is the word you know so well you can say in your sleep. And God just pumps it through an IV into your soul. Right past all the turmoil, right down to the middle of your heart, and you say, yeah, yeah, he's here. I'm okay. Men and women, this is what makes us useful instead of good for nothing. All of our classes will give you a lot of content and hopefully we're giving you a passion for God. You can't drive people to God. You have to entice them to God. And our prayer is that we would entice you to God. But you have to go yourself. You have to flee certain things. You have to pursue certain things. And then he says, so flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You don't do this by yourself. Isolation is one of the worst things you can do. So are your friends characterized by those who have a pure heart? Or is their speech filled with sexual innuendo, cursing under their breath, worldly pursuits, Are you isolating yourself, trying to make life work alone? How would you identify those with a pure heart? How might you increase your interaction with them to pursue these things together? Another young man asked me yesterday, how do you you have an influence on the people around you? And I said, well, instead of this griping that a lot of people do, you could 
you could walk out of chapel and say, you know, God really spoke to me about this. I, I mean, if it's true, God spoke to me about this. I really need to think about that. And you know what? You'll find who doesn't want to hang around you, and you will find people who do. Because you're testifying that God is at work in your life just by the way you comment on the things that go on in your life. God really answered prayer for me today. I've been begging God about this, and he did this. That will attract people who want God. But if you're just, if you're just all to yourself and never praising God for what he's doing and then saying, well, I don't have anybody. Well, maybe he's not attractive to anybody. Share the words of the living God and what he's doing in your life. And you'll find other people who want that will be attracted to you. So when feeling abandoned, get God's perspective. The evil God says I'm addressing is greater than you realize. And all of us are meaning makers trying to make sense out of what is happening to us. So keep your interpretive lens clean when you're feeling abandoned. Don't listen to or give in to your flesh. It will destroy you. And constantly take God's perspective about everything. God has words to say about everything. And in this book, he has said everything that matters about everything that matters. And he's said everything here that we need to know, but we must know it. And we must live it and obey it. And men and women, with his help, every one of us in this room can do that. We can stand before the judgment seat and present to him the good works he did through us. Instead of standing there empty-handed with good for nothing as our hallmark, I just beg of you, Take a lesson from a loincloth. Take a lesson from a dishonorable vessel. We, we must run from that and be what God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the words of your prophets and your apostles to us. Thank you for loving us enough to let us know what you think about all these things. Thank you for loving us enough to put your own spirit in us, to be with us and to teach us and to convict us and to illuminate us. Thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus and for all you have done for us through your blessed son. I pray for these men and women. I pray for ourselves as faculty that you would help us to walk holily and unblameably before you in love that we would not be good for nothing, but we would one day hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We thank you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we love. Amen.